call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 111 of Call It Friend of the Podcast, where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Danica Tiernan watched two films from director Otto Preminger, 1959's Anatomy of a Murder and 1944's Laura. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out justwatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call It Friend of Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. Fair enough, cut that, just like we cut Mike Rice. Anyway, how have you been? Um, good, I'm busy, I'm working hard, I'm trying to keep up with watching films and then to talk about them. I've been doing well with watching films. How's that now? I've just been, like, I've been lucky enough that my wife is, uh, you know, off her feet and tired and just goes up to bed early with our kid and... I'll just watch Dirty Harry. <laughs> I watched all of Dirty Harry in one sitting the other day. I'll talk about it just next Just the week. first film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hadn't seen nice it in one. years. Yeah. Again, I'll talk uh, talk about it uh, soon, but uh, yeah, it's been good. And even better, the two films that I was obliged to watch for this podcast, I really enjoyed them quite a bit. I enjoyed them too. I think this is my first exposure to Otto Preminger. I believe it's my first exposure to uh, exposure. Wait a minute, I, I've, I got his name. Otto Preminger. Yeah, no, it's Preminger. Pre- it's Preminger. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I looked Preminger. up Preminger. Anyway, this was the first time Otto Preminger exposed himself to you. It was. I hadn't seen anything that he'd done before. He'd never exposed himself to me prior. I'll start off, I suppose. Isn't it? Isn't it mad that the most iconic thing about this film is the... Uh, the art and the score. Anatomy of a Murder. Yeah. Scored by Duke Ellington, and he's in the film. That's right, yeah. Uh, cool. Pie Eyes or something. Yeah, that's a normal name. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds but, like some uh, sort of racist epithet, but... It, it's so good, isn't it? It's I thought it was great. Film. I like it. I'd only say that the only, you know, if there's going to be a knock against it, it's just that there's been a lot of courtroom dramas since 1959, so... The payoff of the whole film feels a bit like, well, that's it. I know what you're saying, but I think, okay. So when it started out and like I was a bit muddled with it at the start because it is, it's a stranger film at the start in the, in the setup to the case where you just see Jimmy Stewart coming back from a fishing trip and there's all that jaunty jazz going on and you're just after the Saul bass credit sequence. But then you sort of begin to realize, oh no, this was putting in place the... This is the early iteration of a cinematic grammar that has been refined since. I, you could probably say that about both of the films we watched. Uh, in, in very different ways. Yeah, yeah. Different cinematic grammar and different types yeah, of stories. I'm not sure what I'm... I'm not sure I know what you mean exactly with with uh, Laura, but with... Well, we Just are, Laura... I mean, Laura's more... Okay, we're, we're, maybe we should wait until we get to it. But it's like it's more of like a typical mystery revelation noiry type thing that the ending of I was I, I was just thinking while watching Laura is like if a film like that was made now mm. there would be like another two or three twists. Yes, that's true. So yeah, it's just, okay, I know it's that mean. kind of yeah, thing. I just yeah, mean yeah. like because it, at the time it must have been shocking. There is one big and shock it is still in it, really we, nice. which we'll it, get it's to. St- yeah, it's yeah. still really nicely, is well made, and it's it's still uh, they're both like you said they're both like they're they're both excellent films. Mm. And even now, so many years later, I can still watch them and they hold my attention. But 
so much has changed in the world and cinema since these two films were made that I but I think they score on both that in terms of just being highly entertaining uh, I'd say Anatomy of a Murderer more so but they also score high on just particularly with Anatomy of a Murderer of a Murder just being uh, just a real insight and inquiry to to the time in which it was set and filmed like the, the thing is so there are themes that come up in the film that are you know the film could inspire a whole spate of uh, slut parades based on just one or two scenes, for <laughs> nice example. Wild, some of the stuff that people are doing. Wild, some of the stuff they're slinging. But the thing is, what's very nice about the film is you do get the feeling that Otto Preminger is on the right side of history with the way he's portraying it. Like, uh, you know, okay, we'll we'll get to we'll get to this. Uh, I mean, that, that just shows how society. I mean, you, you say the same thing about most things. Is like. That's how society works. Is when something uh, this I'm sure this film, like you say, was like the most right on. Like at the time, people must have been shocked. To be, I mean, part, well, they just, were. Just, it was just, banned just, in just Chicago. Topic, like the topic that they're that, you know like dealing with. But then, like it was more so, the language that was the thing. The language, language too, got into but like trouble. over a period of time, now it seems insane. <laughs> but it's you know you put it into its context and its time. Well, the thing is, the very interesting thing, now we will get to the plot very soon. At some point we will mention what we're scurrying around, but... One thing that I find fascinating about it is, and it only really, it only, I only really got this picture of it once Jimmy Stewart starts being a trial lawyer as opposed to just his character. Yeah. You realize that everybody is gaming it in a different way. Absolutely, everyone is a shy bag. Even Jimmy Stewart is a bit of a shy bag. Oh, but he's brilliant. Don't no, I, no, no. I think he's good. I mean, I don't dislike him at all. But, but he is a shy bag. Yes, he's not trying. He, you know, previously worked. Probably the, on the only other nice side. guy is the judge in the end. Yeah, the judge seems solid. He seems like a very. Uh, he seems like the only guy who's doing things be- for like the quote unquote right reasons. And Quill's daughter. Yeah, as well, Mary Pallant. All right, we should like a. Uh, I'll. I could. I. I Please. Hope, I hope we can rocket through the plot soon enough. Let's see. Jimmy Stewart uh, in. I don't know. People would have thought of it as near the the end of his career, but it was actually one of his mid career roles. He um, plays plays an attorney called Paul Beagler, who Polly. seemingly has stepped away from the law a little bit and just hangs out with his drunk friend, uh, reading law books in the evening. Then he gets called up for a case, uh, and you get the sense he hasn't worked in a bit because his uh, secretary isn't getting paid exactly. And the case, I mean, you know, okay, fair enough, it's 1959, but it, you know, just because it's a black and white film and everything, the, the nature of the case is shocking. So this woman called uh, Mrs. Mannion, Laura Mannion, Laura Mannion gets um, raped by a, a character known to her called Quill, and then Miss, uh, Mr. Mannion, Frederick Mannion, her husband, just marches down to the bar where this guy works, where Laura was previously in the evening, and shoots him dead. And Jimmy Stewart takes the case, and they decide to go the route of temporary insanity by way of uncontrollable urge, like the Devo song. And then that's the route they decide to pursue. The uh, It really lays down the template for, I don't know, the judge is an old patient man, 
The DA are shite bags. They're, one of them is just slightly inept. And then George, them, George C. C. Scott. George I C. Mean, Scott. You bring gets George C. Scott in with his fucking one of the, chin. To be, I got to say, it's one of my favorite He's shows solid. of him. He's so very, good. Very good. Very um, good. Everyone's as, good in this. As Claude Dancer. Everyone is good. All the, yeah. big, the people, the main uh, the main cast members. Yeah. Good. Oh, it's it's so brilliant when Jimmy Stewart turns it on as the, as the, as the trial lawyer. It's just brilliant. You know, you know who else is in this? Orson Bean playing the army side psychiatrist who's orson bean we talked about him before he was in uh being john malkovich he's the old man oh yes and he was the one who <laughs> he found raul uh, julia yeah on yeah, his yeah. holiday to wherever puerto rico or something yeah, 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 he, yeah he was the uh he was dr matthew smith the army psychiatrist who's uh yeah the the softly spoken <laughs> <army>. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. i'm like, the army psychiatrist hey, hello hello there uh, yes indeed so then any so Certain things about the different characters emerge as the trial goes on. First of all, like by the standards of 1959, Oof. like Mrs. Mannion, not Man. only is she a hot piece of ass, but she's like just flirting with everybody. She does not look, yeah, she doesn't feel 1959. No, she, it's just, it's too much. Yeah. It's just like, it's, uh, she's highly she sexualized. So but this, yes, this, yeah, this film feels very real. Yes. Like it's very, there's a couple of scenes early on which are almost like, Steady cam shots of well, it was all shot house. on locations. Yeah, it's mad. do you know um like so Jimmy Stewart's so the the first of all, it's the, all in Michigan. The right? story in the is UP. is based on a book by a guy called John D. Voker who argued the actual case. He's the Jimmy Stewart character, and the the scenes in uh, Beagler's house were shot in Voker's Volkner's house, and the bar where the bar where you know the your man Al works and all that. That is the bar where that was the scene of the murder. Oh, that's quality. Yeah, yeah. So shot largely on location. He was big into that, was out of Preminger. Anyway, yeah, they all gradually revealed themselves. Frederick uh, Mannion then sort of maybe reveals himself as a man with a short temper. Jimmy Stewart reveals himself as a man who's more... He's he's not America's dad in this movie. He's, no, like, he's like a proper lawyer. Yeah, yeah. He's like showboating and he's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what Preminger was actually interested in the production yeah. of the film is showing how the courts work. Which is great because uh, there was that one point where he says something, it gets stricken from the record and mm. his client leans over and says, like, oh, how do brilliant. they forget that? Because how do they, they forget? Don't. He's like, they don't. Because I was thinking exactly the yeah. same thing, and I guess the audience is the same as going like, because I've often thought that. It's like, how do you strike something from someone's memory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, no, you don't. So that's why you say wild things in the court, and they get stricken from the record, but oh, it's yeah, yeah. in your favor. Like, there's <laughs> my favorite of the, the wild things Jimmy Stewart says is... Uh, when he just says to the barman, Al, he's just, and then he goes, ah, and I bet he said to you, I'm going to go out there and rape her. And you said, yeah, give her one for me, boss. It's fucking mad, the stuff he's saying. Anyway. Everyone in the court is almost, it's, you know, they're, they're having a great time. Yeah. There's, there's so many laughs where you're like, okay, that's a 1959 laugh point where <laughs> well, they decided the, the, the audience should be laughing here. But then that. to backtrack, we are we're like, we're having a giggle at it just because we've watched it. But I mean, you know, even for a black and white film and the tone of it, you know, the description of the rape itself is serious. And, you know, I mean, 
just goes to show people raped people the exact same way back in 1950s, apparently. Yeah, it's could, proper. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a very hard It's grim as it's fuck. It's grim. It's a grim. But the, the people in the court, the people in the gallery, oh, yeah, do yeah. not take rape very seriously. There's no, no sympathy for, for Mrs. Mannion. No, there's not. Um, at all. And, but I think, I think that's sort of an interesting, I, I, I think the angle the film takes on that is by no means accidental. Because there is one part of it where, like, it's it's it is funny, where the judge says uh, panties. The government were talking about because the uh, rapist he said he he ripped off her panties, which becomes a plot point, and she couldn't find them then, and they went to look back f- for them for evidence. Anyway, they announced it out to the court, and um, yeah, everybody starts tittering and laughing, and it, there's just this uh, just I don't know real poignant shot. She's right in the center. And she's like just the only one la- not laughing there. She's just sitting there having been a rape victim. Everybody around there is having <laughs> it's a titter. fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. And she's just there. Like, she, like they, I think that that's played really well. I mean, it's not an accidental shot by any means. I know, means. but it's so funny. If I mean, if, if you look at that and then think about how, how this would be dealt with nowadays, I mm. mean, it's a completely different world. This is a film impossible to remake. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Stuart does some digging around, finds out the woman who was living with the accused rapist who had then got murdered is in fact his daughter and from Canada, from Canada. And he also figures that the barman guy called Al is lying because he's got feelings for the daughter or anyway, but that angle doesn't quite work. Then the, the prosecutors try another dirty trick. They (laughs) try. Get a coerce a, a prisoner with a horrific criminal record into <laughs> lying about Frederick Mannion. It backs and forths. Eventually, Quill's daughter says, "Yeah, I found these the the panties in the hotel laundry. I I reckon he did it. He gets done as guilty, and then the um, the Mannions abscond without paying their bill, and that's the end of the movie." How did you read it overall? The ending. I think it feels very modern. Well, yeah, it does because the, so I read I read up a little bit on this, and the film was seen a little bit as let's call it reactionary in an inside baseball kind of way because mm. courtroom dramas were were usually played up as melodramas, so to speak. But anybody who's paying attention to the difference between the way Jimmy Stewart is in the first twenty minutes of the movie and the way he is once he gets his tweed suit on and starts making arguments, they can. You you know if you are paying attention properly, it's clear Preminger is not is more interested in um, the mechanisms of a court of law rather than the moral the morality of the tale. So we mentioned earlier that everybody's in it in a certain way for themselves, except for the judge, which I would say is probably true. Um, the judge seems to be moral at all times. What he's like one of those. Be. He's just like because what happened to the other judge? The the normal sitting judge is like away for some reason. Like so that, they yeah. brought this other guy in from like because it's up in Michigan, but it's from he's from like another part of Michigan or something. And he's just like he's a guy sitting there looking at his watch. I mean, he doesn't really give a fuck. I mean, he's trying to do his job, but at the same time, he'd quite happily just go and have lunch or go away. Yeah, but I mean, he he does pay attention to it. He is. He does. Of... To be fair, and he rules frequently on the mad things that are happening. Yeah, and I like that's one thing as well. Is is like this scenario has been dumbed down every which way about Sunday over the years, but there's real. I, even though I, it's obviously dumbed down to a certain extent just to fit it into a script, but there's the 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 plot is not linear. It it goes back and forth like a tennis match. 
really the whole way through. It's messy like an actual trial. There's no crazy no. twists and turns, really. See, that, that's how I felt about Laura as well, to an extent of like, this is the point I was making earlier, was like, because so much has come since this point, there would have been like four more twists mm. in a way that almost made this a little unsatisfying to me, where I was like, so he gets off and this and now they've gone it there's a there's an element where it just feels like i'm like ah, i wanted a bit more well i'll tell you what when i first when i uh, <laughs> when i began my research of this film on wikipedia oh, I've heard and, of that um, i saw preminger in his film the man with the golden arm uh covers drug addiction that's the one with frank sinatra frank sinatra right? yeah yeah. And um, something action and consent, I think it's called. Uh, That's the one about like a like a gay senator. Or yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I looked and thought, oh, so this guy's sort of like a, a David Simon type character. But I actually, in the end, I don't like. Despite the fact that he he definitely seems to have been concerned with social justice, he soon at, like this film would have been the beginning of the end for the like censorious era of American cinema. Just by the fact that they said the words uh, rape, violation, mm. uh, sperm, things like that. Like, it was a big deal at the time. It was, like I said, the film was banned in the city of Chicago. Um, but then the year after that, he also, he directed um, Paul Newman in Leonoris's film about the foundation of Israel, Exodus. And credited Dalton Trumbo, in, who had been blacklisted. So, it's not that he didn't have a political edge, but... What seems to be the case is so he was a theater director originally in Vienna, and as that means nothing to me. What? Oh, Vienna! <laughs> oh, nice. Sorry. Fuck! You, I always make that it. joke. You and walked I didn't. into it. You walked oh, into I it. Did. Come on now. It means nothing to me. Yeah, that guy never gets credit for putting together Live Aid, man. Anyway, so he was a th- he was a theater director. I was expecting to hear some story about him absconding because the nazis were coming but no he had just a stroke of luck he got hired uh, to go to hollywood make pictures but loads of theater directors were doing that back then and i think that's one of the like the likes of billy eider or Leibowitz um was another fella fritz lang well that fair no like fritz lang didn't exactly start in the theater but point being the medium was so new that it was just constantly evolving at that point and these guys were just figuring out good ways to sort of tell stories, if you're following me. So, like, r- rather than... I-, I think one of the reasons that make the social commentary so effective is that it's not the it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not what it's all about, if you follow me. What do you mean? Well, this is... He wanted to tell the story of what a trial is like. He, right. read, a, he read a book about a trial... And he said, I want to I want to get the thrill. And it wasn't like the most, and that's what, yeah, I guess like the trial is kind of whatever in a way. Like it's interesting, but it's not the single most interesting trial that's ever been put on film. But the actual nitty gritty and the back and forth of everything that happens is great. Like for me, this film, as soon as they step into the courtroom, that it's like, it's instantly so much better. Oh, All the courtroom stuff is just uh, excellent. I'll tell you what, is like, I, so I put this on with a plan to, because I saw so it was like, uh, it's, it's two it's, hours, it's, 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 it's two hours it's 40 minutes long. long. So I put this on with a plan towards watching it over two nights, to be honest, just because, you know, mm. I'm not going on in my house and whatever. By the time that I had to go to bed, it, like I was like an hour and 20 in, I was sick in turning it off. Because it really does. Once it gets rolling, it's like, yeah. Because it's like 50 minutes or so of setup. I was the same. I watched an hour 20 and then I finished it off. Uh, like, But yeah, it's kind of hard to take a break there. 
Yeah, as, as well, it's just like, just scene chewing of the highest degree between um, George C. Scott and Jim Jimmy Stewart. Just, just crazy charisma. And it's like, I don't know, like, I, it's the sort of thing that makes me think of Jimmy Stewart for his half Tom Hanks, half psychotic weirdness. He's like charisma on a Steve McQueen level, but not in the sort of laconic sense. He's just he's just so intense. He's just so in, intense. You can't look away from him. Like the the shouty lines he delivers like no one else, whereas George C. Scott has sort of a quietness about him. Mm. It's kind of terrifying. I don't know who George C. Scott reminds me of, but like he's just I guess he's got a bit of sort of like Roy Scheider face or something, but he's just that scene where he basically his whole angle of attack is Mrs. Mannion is a slag. Um, and he's just staring into her face saying it. And like, the thing is, uh, judge me if you will, but the film is, the film has made us see a little bit of that in Mrs. Mannion anyway. And it's not accidental. You do see a little bit of that in Mrs. Mannion. She's like flirting with everybody and, you know, just flaunting herself around the gaff. But then in that moment, you realize like, and again, I, there's no way it's accidental. He cast George C. Scott to say the lines, for Christ's sake. In that moment, I think Preminger very adequately brings across, it's like, well, it doesn't matter how she is. It, like, look what happened to her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's a like really impactful moment, actually. And to, like the, the thing is, the film kind of, you know, would... <laughs> Probably not a good thing to say the film judges her behavior, but I think it does judge her behavior a little bit. But it also brings you to the point to say, well, yeah, fair enough, but doesn't mean that yeah, she I mean, deserved there's, to get there's, raped. There are elements which are of the time and probably have lasted until not that long ago of like, what was she wearing? Yeah. How was she behaving? Why was she at a bar without her husband? Why was she playing pinball with a guy? But Preminger is saying, well, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That doesn't give someone the right to obviously sexually assault, to like to violate another person. Obvious. I mean, to us, I think to most people, hopefully that's obvious. But in 1959 or 1958. Perhaps not so. Yeah. It's almost like a less didactic version of 12 Angry Men. Because you, it's very clear to, like, you know the scene where Jimmy Stewart suggests the defense to Fred Yeah, that's where, that's where Jimmy Stewart is basically. He coaches putting, him. That's him putting his fucking shite bag cards on the table of being like, I'm not going to tell you what to say, but yeah, I'm going to tell you what to say to, to, to plead here. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's good because that f- does not seem like a 1959 thing to do, to go, you know, like the, the lawyer going up to the uh, accused and saying, like, listen, listen, this is what will help. Now, was this in any way like what you imagined it would be? I was expecting more anatomy, to be honest. <laughs> we got a murder. Where was the anatomy? I guess we did get to see the, the murder chopped off. I'll tell you pieces. what, that um, Otto Perminger... He has got a good eye for a hot black and white lady. Two films. I know you're a huge fan of black and white ladies. So you like old uh, old Gene Tierney as well. Oh yeah. Are you kidding me? Lee Ramick. Oh Lee Ramick. Hell yeah. You like ladies who've got men's first names. That's it. I do. (laughs) Gene. (laughs) I like. I like that other lady he had. Steve Johnson. (laughs) Do you? Do you think there's something oddly disjointed about? the title sequence and the jazz score versus the content of the film because those are two very famous aspects that 
I, and I do, don't get me wrong, the, the art is cool as fuck. I'm even thinking about getting a poster for my flat. But it's it's very Hitchcock sort of art. Yeah, yeah. And the film is much I mean, more is, serious than that. Is that what is that the other stuff that he did? He the artwork was he by Saul Bass, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was drastically different to what I'd imagined. I think it was a case where they could get Duke Ellington, so mm. like, why not? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, I, But I think it kind of, I think the jauntiness of it works to just be like, Look, we're going to be talking about murder and rape and some, you know, obviously fucked up things, but like, we're not, there's no point in the film where anyone is breaking down or people are being incredibly stoic throughout. Mm. So a jauntier score is better, maybe, than like, uh, you know, something more tear jerking. Did you know which way it was going to end? Do you think it was going to get off? Yeah, I assumed he wasn't going to jail, but. Which actually. I didn't know, but then when he did get off, I was very happy with the ending where him and the wife absconded. Yeah, so the Mannions are kind of shy bags. They're scum, yeah. yeah. They're <laughs> subhuman scum, Lynn. Yeah, yeah, totally. They're absolute scum. <laughs> They're sex people, Lynn. <laughs> but it's at so least one of them is. Know, actually, it's so funny when, when they arrive at the caravan site oh where they were God. living, and there's a fucking there's a bin full of beer cans and, and, high and high heels. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wait, just because they were black and white in beer 50s makeup, and it didn't mean heels. that they were total pieces of shit. <laughs> yeah, they were essentially travelers. They were, yeah, yeah, totally. Should we talk a little bit about cast? Tell me about some of these people. We must have talked about some of these people. We talked about old Orson Bean before at some point. Well, that means we don't have to go over him yeah, again, yeah, thank God. Good. So, Jimmy Stewart. What have you seen Jimmy Stewart in? Well, well I've seen him in uh, a lot of things. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I've, been, I've uh, seen him in all kinds of things. <laughs> There's a war hero. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, I'm war actually hero. seeing him right now. No, I'm, going, I'm going semi-Connery. His cage meets Connery. Well, I, 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 you know, I, I think it's so. mighty unfair that I have to do these here USO shows, see? And I could be out oh, there flying yeah. airplanes. I'm an airplane obsessive. That's a, that that's true. That's he good. was he was a war hero. He flew uh, <laughs> which war? Uh, World War Two. Oh, okay. It would be good if he was like a war hero in a completely different war. That oh, yeah, good. yeah. Just to well, no, like no, I mean, slightly more obscure. He war. did also take a heavy part in the Costa Rican Civil War of uh, 1957. <laughs> yeah. um, he was a hero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he was. He was an aviation nerd, accomplished pilot. He lived a life almost like the acting version of his characters. For, like, you know, he's got the reputation of uh, the original mold in which uh, that Tom Hanks took his uh, uh, shape off so he could, yeah. you know, be a pedophile in Hollywood without anybody noticing. Right. And that does actually make sense. He, uh, there's heavy gossip that... Is, uh, is, there, is there dodgy stuff about James Stewart? No, 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 no. Oh, not I thought really, you were suggesting really. that James Stewart was on the same No, thing. no, no, no. He was madly in love with um, an acting friend of his, who's, of all the things, whose name I forgot to write down here. Um, the one he was married to? No. This is it. His uh, wife was Gloria Hattrick yes. McLean. Hattrick is a great um, middle name right there. No, it was another lady he was in love with. And uh, it was it kind of, it was just apparently because he was sort of such a reserved fellow on Jimmy Stewart that um, he never acted on it and she always just uh, thought of it as uh, plutonic. And then he had uh, a number of like, you know, so ladies over the years, he reputedly got um, Marlena Dietrich pregnant and she had an abortion, which oh. is quite, quite a bit of ska. She was supposed to be Laura. She was the first person who was going to be Laura. Really? Yeah. Um, Jean Tierney's daughter. 
he was um, a lifelong friend of Henry Fonda and Ronald Reagan, who he visited in the house, in the the house, the White House. Ronald Reagan, the actor. Yeah, Ronald Reagan, the actor. Wow. He visited him in the White House several times. He once got into a fist fight with Henry Fonda over politics, and then they just decided to never discuss the subject again. Well, did he punch him and go like, your daughter's going to be awful? Maybe. He would have been, to be fair. <laughs> to be fair. Is she alive? Once the, once the Hanoi Jane stuff happened, you know, Jimmy Stewart would probably have been able to go, I told you Checkmate up, <laughs> Henry. Um, but no, you know what the two of them used to do together when they spent time? What? Hang out, chatting about the old days, building model planes. Oh, well. That's what their thing was. If you're autistic and in Hollywood, what else are you supposed to do? He eventually did get married to a woman divorcee with two sons, adopted the two sons, uh, was heartbroken. One was of them died gay? in Vietnam and he had uh, twin daughters. Was Jimmy Stewart gay? <laughs> I don't know. Just everyone else. Oh, he's a hot piece of ass. One thing that, uh, uh, and apart from the bio and the odd stories, one thing that I, I think it's one of the earlier examples. So, for example, yeah, he was often a good guy. He Like, his first big splash was fucking Mr. Smith goes to Washington, for Christ's sake. 1939. Went on to It's a Wonderful Life. Not, you know, he, he did he did westerns and stuff, always the white hat. But then Alfred Hitchcock was the man who sort of saw the opportunity to make him a bit of a... A bit of a, a odd, creepy character, which he wasn't quite, but he was a bit weird in Vertical's Rear Window. Fucked up. But then he, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, escalated it to Vertigo. I talked about that not that long ago. Vertigo, he is he's a m- murderer. And he's brilliant in it. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's so good. Yeah, I think I j- <laughs> he's the same type of actor as somebody like uh, Steve McQueen. Just absolute one type of charisma. But what charisma? Like nobody else could do it, really. So I think that's great. You big fan. Uh, so then there's a uh, Lee Remick, big Lee, as Laura Mannion, who kind. Of, this was her big break. She did one other fairly big film. You might have seen The Omen. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, she's she's Damien's mum. Exactly. Before Gregory Peck's. But she almost almost took over the role from um, Marilyn Monroe. Ooh, uh, something's got to give. Um, Marilyn Monroe's co-star in that was Dean Martin and Marilyn Monroe was just going off being a wagon so they uh, tried to fire her and Dean Martin said you fire her I walk too I've loads of respect for Lee Remick but I got on this picture to work with Marilyn Monroe so Dino pulled the brakes on that and stopped Lee Remick's uh, you know, career from properly taking off son of a bitch Ben Gazzara, who we've talked about recently. Uh, have we? Because he's a ledge. What did yeah. we talk about the old Gaza about? Well, Chicago from Gaza he, Strip. He's Jackie Treehorn and Big He's Jackie Treehorn and Big Lebowski. Yeah. That's, as he's best, and that's how, what he's like to say just before he died. He said, it's me, Ben Gazzara, a.k.a. Jackie Treehorn. He said that? Big Lebowski. Yes. Before <laughs> so, he yeah, died. That's how he introduced himself. <laughs> he died in 2012. Yeah. I, I don't know. A, re- a relatively old age for a man who used to smoke like four packs of cigarettes a day. All these people were absolutely chaining the yeah, cigarettes. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? Um, he claims to have turned down a lot of roles in the 50s and 60s, only to then in the mid-60s, bec- and he said, he said in an interview with Charlie Rose, you would call me a fool uh, if you heard some of the roles I turned down, and uh, I'd say I was a fool. And here's a bit of Hollywood goss I found on some Reddit blogs. Apparently the story of Rick Dalton not getting, the, uh, almost getting the role in... 
Steve McQueen is partially based on Ben Gazzara. St- almost getting the Steve McQueen role in The Great Escape is partly based on Ben Gazzara almost getting that role. But he's turning super it down, cool. I mean, he's great. And, like, he's really, really cool in this. Yeah, yeah, he is. And, like, as well, great performance. He's like, so kind of chilled. But also, can you not just see a raging lunatic underneath the surface? Sure. Um, I think it's a great performance. He feels like proper military. He snuck a waitress out of the Prague Spring with Robert Vaughn who, uh, from Bullet, who I've talked about recently, uh, while filming a film called The Bridge at Remagen. So if you know anything about the, the um, Prague Spring, do you know anything? No, I hear it's very nice. <laughs> well, no, it was, just, it was protests started against the communist regime in Prague and they Tiananmen squared them. They, uh, and they... Had him and um, Robert Vaughn and so they were there when the shooting when it, when, when when it went Soviet off. Union uh, invaded. Yeah, exactly. And they had befriended a waitress and snuck her out of the country in the boot of a car just across one of the borders that the Soviet Union hadn't quite secured yet. I like to think they, you know, were, had had a nice conversation. Had a nice respectful. conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Obviously, totally. Finally, just going to talk about George C. Scott as Claude Dancer. Oh, who, it, it, this is the most interesting thing I could find about. Um, George C. Scott, he twice nominated for an Os- for Oscars, uh, once for The Hustler, once for Patton, obviously. Rejected both Oscar nominations. What a fucking psycho. Yeah. What was his deal? kind of psychotic, isn't it? And he won one of them. They just gave, they gave him the one for Patton. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So what? He just, he didn't go and collect his Oscar or anything? No, he didn't. And actually... He um he, he uh his Oscar for his Oscar for Patton he he claims that he because he also played Patton Scott in believed a that every dramatic performance was unique and could not be compared to others. He wanted to have it donated to some war museum or other, but he never put it in writing, so nobody actually knows where the Oscar he won that night is. Apparently, I assume somebody has it and is delighted with having it. And he actually played. Patton in a in a very odd sequel apparently, which takes place when yeah he, I, I saw a bit of, I saw something about that it's like in the late seventies or something when he's crashing so the 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 film is based around him crashing his car so it's almost cutting back to the car crash like the scenes in Inception and him having nineteen eighty six over his life nineteen eighty six the last days of Patton have you ever seen Patton. Uh, it's one of those things I probably owned on VHS, but we're talking more than 20 years. Anyway. He was also in Mussolini, The Untold Story. Blame Benito Mussolini. That's accurate casting. He looks a bit like Mussolini. He certainly does. Anyway, I was very happy and pleasantly surprised with Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, it's probably film. Uh, the film I preferred this week, but I did enjoy Laura quite a bit as well. I had a lot of time for Laura. I was surprised. I was a bit worried. Why? A film from 1944 is like... The past is a foreign country. There's such a big time difference than 1944 to 1959. I mean, a film that was filmed during the Second World War where they supposedly cut like a minute um, of... Yeah, they supposedly cut like a minute of Waldo dressing Laura of like choosing out the outfit that he wanted her to put on because they were worried the GIs serving in the Second World War would see this, like, fucking opulent... The, the way that people were living in New York in the 1940s and be like, like, why are we fighting a war for these dickheads to be, like, going... I, it's I a want fair you to, point. Waldo I want you to wear this. Actually, to be honest, all the male characters are dickheads in this. 
Uh, McPherson's eyes, come on. He wants well, the, to shag his, you know, the person who he's investigating. Well, the thing, is, the, the, the thing about McPherson is, uh, it's just a bit of a stretch the way he his story like, works out. He sounds like the most Scottish detective of all time, Mark McPherson, all right? <laughs> <laughs> What's he doing in New York? Fair. But yeah, so I was I was concerned before watching it, but equally... When I saw the runtime was like 84 minutes or something, I thought, how, what could possibly go wrong? And by God, did it live up to its runtime? It started and ended. But did you enjoy it? Yeah, no, it was a good film. I, I liked it. I, I think, okay, so when we get to the, we're getting into the plot plot here, but there's a moment where McPherson is about halfway through the film where Mark McPherson, the uh, New York City detective who's By been... way of Fife. Yeah, exactly. He's, been, he's trying to solve this case about this murdered lady, Laura. He's sitting around in her apartment and there's a it's about a two-minute scene where he's just sitting around doing nothing and I was like, fuck me, this could, go, this could be going bad, badly wrong right now. But then Laura walks through the door, and from there to the end, I was 100% in. I was hooked, and I was uh, yeah. intrigued to see how it was going to play out. Honestly, I was, I was not expecting to be wrong-footed. I yeah. thought this was going to be like Rebecca, and Laura was going to be dead for the movie, and it was going to be about solving the mystery. Well, I think I'd said, I think when we'd mentioned the film, I'd given like a one-sentence plot synopsis that I'd read online, which was like, a police detective falls in love with the woman whose murder he's investigating. And so you're kind of like, what's he going to do now? Just start making tributes in her house. <laughs> like, what's going on? It's 1944. How could this possibly play out? But yeah, like I was saying about this film, if it was more, a more up-to-date version would be twistier than it was. And it still it works quite well in the noirish sense. I mean, it plays out. It's fun to it's fun to see where. I it mean, goes. it would also be interesting to see a modern version of this because you, I would love to see somebody like the um, the Rock, the Vincent Price character, be mm. uh, as creepy as he is. Nah. He feels like a very modern character in a way because he's an absolute fucking dickhead. Oh, he's the worst. He, he's like. All about self-preservation. Doesn't give a fuck about anyone else. And One of the most to... satisfying belly punches in history. <laughs> when McPherson That's a proper him. punch. Yeah, 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 he does get properly punched. But like he feels, yeah, it feels that feels like a very modern character. But to see Vincent Price, to me, Vincent Price is like the inventor from um, Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. So like he's an old man and he's horror films and he's all that. Like he's all that. Well, he uh, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, the Witchfinder General. But he's not this like tall, supposedly. But he's a total creepazoid in this. Yeah, absolutely. He's the worst character, and he didn't. He's not even the murderer he's, he's in a the end. Bag. All right. So we go through the plot. Yes. We don't see anything of... Uh, it's kind of weird how this film starts because it introduces Clifton Webb as Waldo Lidecker, yeah. who's in his bathtub. Narrator. He's the narrator who says, like, I remember when Laura Hunt was killed. Something along those lines. Mm. So he, he introduces and narrates the story of this uh, lady, Laura Hunt, who's like a, a young, beautiful, highly successful advertising executive. And then we're introduced to uh, the NYPD detective, Mark McPherson, Mark McPherson, who's investigating her murder. 
Laura Hunt was killed uh, inside the doorway of her apartment where she opened the door and someone blasted her face off of a shotgun. Unsurprisingly, it's 1944, so we don't see anything. Mm. We don't get to see anyone with their face all blown off. Boo. I like the first scenes because you've got the narrator. You know how I feel about that. I like being told. I like being told and shown what's happening. So we get a lot of background about this Waldo Lidecker character who's a newspaper columnist. He's this older man. He's described here in Wikipedia as imperious and effete. I would say like controlling and gay. I think that might be what they're suggesting. Uh, is okay. Is his? Oh, the actor was gay and was sort of famously gay. But like, is this? Is the character? Is is his character gay? Is Waldo Lidecker gay? Well, there is a mutual acquaintance of ours I who has a theory that I'm not necessarily know. saying I agree with. I'd love um, to know who this is. But it's an interesting theory. I'll tell you now. Go. It's Noel Sheehan. Oh, old Noli. He's got a theory where he says that the whole phenomenon of, you know, women basically hating themselves over, over like, you know, flaw, slight flaws in their appearances or not um, living up to an image of perfection from Vogue magazine. Oh, it's because of the standards of gay men. Exactly. So uh, I've heard that before. I've heard that a lot. No, oh, I thought it was his original theory. No, I've heard that in a bunch of places. Of I do like, think I do think it holds water. It's, though. it's it's not men who are applying this these crazy beauty standards to women. Exactly, it's not it's not straight men. It, well, that this. that that's definitely true. <clears throat> yeah, no, I've I've heard that before. Yeah, but okay. So he's looking, for, you know, this character, this um, this Waldo Lidecker character. Is, he 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 meets Laura. She comes up to him because he's this big journalist, newspaper columnist. She's trying to be um, Peggy. She's trying to be. He's, she's trying yeah, to be yeah, Peggy she's for Madman, and he's really rude to her and a bit gay. And yeah, he is a bit gay to her. By which we mean catty. He's catty. He's like, uh, well, I mean, there's, I can think of one thing much more important than uh, your career, and that's my meal. So you're basically defining gay as he's good with words. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he is good with words. <laughs> he's good with he's he has comebacks and he can he can he can cut people down. He makes withering remarks. And he's able to do it in the face of someone like Gene Tierney because, you know, he's unaffected by the fact that she is a really hot piece of ass. She's not you, Gene Tierney. No, I haven't heard you qualify what I said. Do you think Gene Tierney is a hot piece of ass in this film? I don't from the world's not black and white for me. It's of many colors. I can't... Okay, fair enough. I'm not into these black and white ladies like you are. Jean Tierney is dead, and I will not reanimate her corpse. I'm not saying we should reanimate her corpse. I just say, let her lie. Let her stay there. Okay, the fair enough. So dead ladies can't be hot? Dead ladies can't be hot. That's, uh, that's a new script. Not I'm even Brittany on. Murphy? You've seen that scene on, in 8 now. Mile in the, in the car factory. It's extremely sexy. She got, she got killed off of fungus. She get killed off a of fungus. Yeah, something like that. That's accurate. Okay, fair enough. Anyway. I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but my point she is, got killed off a of fungus. Gene is a hoppy's ass. Well, who am I to argue? It's me. She's fine. What's to say? She's nice. I got lots of. I got a lot to say about Gene Tierney when we get to cast. I've got like a fucking essay. Oh hell yeah! And I essay, I mean like a a Mexican gangbanger. Anyway, okay. So, <laughs> all right. So tell me what happens. 
So uh, we got uh, so we had the nice meat. I can't, we can't call it a meat cute between Waldo Lidecker and Laura. It's like a fucking a meat bastard, <laughs> yeah. a bastard meat uh, between the pair of them, and they become old chummy chums. But then she done got her face all blown off. So then McPherson, uh, Mark McPherson, the uh, detective, has to he's 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 digging into Laura's murder. What's happened to Laura? The other <laughs> Nay cunt leaves here till I find out who fucking blew her face off with a shotgun. <laughs> you can't. So the first, if the, the 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 next person that's introduced is Vince is Vincent Price, is Shelby Carpenter. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I don't know had his horror career begun at this point, but somebody he must have watched this. And He's ju- Frankenstein, motherfucker. He had been He's Frankenstein tall. by this point. Had he? No, I'm just saying he looks like Frankenstein. He's tall as hell. Well, I don't know. Just somebody must have, like, if it hadn't begun, somebody must have seen this and gone, yes, that guy and all the creepy shit ever. Cause all, he, he mar- all he's missing is, like, bolts coming out of his neck. Oh, he's so great. awful. Which makes, actually, that speech that that lady says to him later so wonderful. Oh, no, she says it to Laura. Says that he's a shy bag, yeah, but he's I like, like him. I'm, that yeah. feels very real as well. I can totally see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a lady being like, yeah, I know he's a dickhead, but, you know, he's got money and he's all right. I'm a I dickhead. Guess. I'm a dickhead too. We're all shy bags. It's fine. So Shelby Carpenter is this, uh, he's a parasitic playboy fiance he's described as here. That's quite nice. Mm. A kept man tethered to her wealthy socialite aunt, Anne Treadwell. Who's... Whose aunt is Anne? Uh, Laura's, apparently. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. I'm Treadwell is tolerant of Shelby's infatuation with Hunt, apparently out of her practical acceptance of Carpenter's need for the affection of a woman closer to his own age. Treadwell was old. Er. Yeah, I did know that. Mm, Timothy Treadwell. Nice. <laughs> that's, that's who they should have got. Maybe by he got torn to shreds by a bear. Don't ever listen to the tape of Anne Treadwell having her face shot off. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I promise. Have we I'm watched gonna... <laughs> Grizzly Man for this podcast? No, I watched it. I watched it for myself. It's great. Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's a good film. Yeah, so this, I, there's things in this plot synopsis that I didn't pick up on. So this is new information to me. But is it necessary? No. Bessie Clary. Clary. Laura's loyal and highly distraught housekeeper is also questioned by McPherson. Through the testimony of Laura's friends and reading through her letters and diary, McPherson becomes obsessed with her. So much so that Lidecker finally accuses him of falling in love with a dead woman. He also learns that Lidecker was jealous of Laura's suitors, using his newspaper column and influence to keep them away. Sorry, to keep them at bay. Yeah, so... Waldo Lidecker, this uh, the the newspaper columnist, he got rid of this the one guy that she was dating by writing yeah, the, a um, newspaper piece saying like he's a dick. Yeah, it it's like it's very much in the mold of that uh, the Burt Lancaster character from Sweet Smell of Success. You said was that based before. on a real guy. You brought that. You referenced that when we watched something else. Maybe the other thing with Burt Lancaster. What the fuck was the other Burt Lancaster from? Oh yeah. Oh um. Atlantic City. Atlantic City. I God, feel like well, you, that was a great movie. That was a good film. Yeah. Susan Sarandon's breasts. One night. Lemons. <clears throat> Lemon breasts. Lemons. One night, the detective falls asleep in Laura's apartment. So here we go. This was the point where I sort of was going, eh, don't know how I feel about this. One night, the detective falls asleep in Laura's apartment in front of her portrait. He is awakened by a woman entering with her own key and is shocked that it is Laura. It's Laura. Laura's it's alive. Laura. It's Laura. You're the one from the painting. 
You're the one that I want. She finds a dress in her closet that had belonged to one of her models. Dying. Oh, here's where we got confused. Treadwell is not... I got confused there between Diane Redfern and Treadwell and Timothy Treadwell. What? I got confused between Anne Treadwell and Diane Redfern. I got confused with the socialite lady that he was, that um, Shelby Carpenter was with and the lady who got her face blown off. Right. So which one is the older lady? The older lady is Anne Treadwell, the one who, yeah, you you got it. It's me. I'm so, she was the one who later on says like, yeah, he's a dickhead, but fuck him, you know. But she is also, but she's also, yes, what she said. (laughs) But she's also Laura Hunt's um, aunt or aunt. She finds a dress in her closet that belonged to one of her models, Diane Redfern. McPherson concludes that the body assumed to have been Laura was in fact Redfern, drawn there for a liaison by Carpenter while Laura was away in the country. What a scumfuck. So Laura went away to the country to decide if she wanted to throw her life away. I mean, marry Vincent Price. But then she came back and she opened the door and was met with uh, Mark McPherson sitting in front of her own painting. And finds out that someone had died. Spoiler. Mark McPherson's going to get a smooch before the end of the movie. You would hope so. Now, with Laura still alive, unmasking the killer becomes even more urgent. It's like Scream. At a party celebrating Laura's return, McPherson arrests Laura for the murder of Redfern. Upon questioning her, he becomes convinced both that she's innocent and that she does not love Carpenter. Getting all the important facts out of her. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of that. There's a lot of that in both of these. definitely nothing. There's a lot of that in these films where a man meets a woman and goes like, well, you know, I mean, kind of, obviously I love you now. (laughs) So So like, uh, are we on? Are we okay? Are we gone? Give yourself to me forever? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Are we cool? Are we good with that? You're not going to give yourself to anyone else. That'd be weird because we've met for a couple of minutes because I was sitting in front of your portrait in your house. So, you know. That is the way it works, pretty much. fucking mad. It happened in the other film as well. Like, Jimmy Stewart is doing everything to go like, he's, you know, go like, well, you know, when a man sees a woman who looks like you. Oh, do you know what? There's a piece of dialogue I forgot to mention. A woman with a nice little jiggle. That's the thing that Jimmy Stewart says in that movie. And now it's probably of the time, but to my ears... I think it's him being like, that's an okay thing to say, yeah. To my ears, more so than anything George C. Scott says, that sounds insane. Can you imagine if you said that to a woman you worked with? You've got a nice little jiggle. Yes. Good God. Well, you know, I'm I'm not a defense attorney. So... Upon questioning Laura, McPherson becomes convinced that she is innocent and that she does not love Carpenter. He goes to search Lidecker's apartment where he becomes suspicious of a clock. That's right. The <laughs> that is identical clock. to the one in Laura's apartment. He become, I like that as a sentence. He becomes suspicious of a clock. So he smashes the clock. Smashes the shit out of the door of the clock. On closer examination, he finds it has a secret compartment. McPherson returns to Laura's apartment. Lidecker is there and notices a growing bond between Laura and the detective. Lidecker insults McPherson and is sent away by Laura, but pauses on the stairwell outside. McPherson examines Laura's clock and finds a shotgun that killed Diane, but leaves it there because he's a knob. Laura is confronted with the truth that Lidecker is a murderer. McPherson and Laura kiss. Yas. Yes. Then he locks her into her her apartment. (laughs) Which is good. He's following. That's what you're supposed to do. That's procedure. 
warning her to admit no one. After he leaves, Sly Decker, who had slipped in, retrieves the shotgun, emerges from another room and attempts to kill Laura, saying that if he cannot have her, no one can. She deflects his shot and flees just as McPherson arrives and Lydecker is shot down by McPherson's sergeant. As he dies, Lydecker whispers, I am the first incel. <laughs> now he says goodbye, Laura. Goodbye, my love. This is a, a happy addition to the subgenre of film, a bunch of swinging dicks after one lady. There was one moment towards the end there where McPherson is going out of Laura's apartment and he's like lock, locking her in, I guess. But where I just, he's kind of going out the door where I just saw in like a modern film, someone would come up behind him and just go fucking and like blow his head yeah, all yeah, over yeah, yeah. the door. Because they're leaving, for the viewer, for our modern viewer, they're leaving this like horrible blank space. We already know that um, that Waldo's out is there, there yeah, the stairwell. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're part right. of you is going like, why the fuck didn't he just go up and just go blam? Bam! Because yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. do that in 1944. You can't paint someone's head against a wall. I mean, McPherson is definitely the inspiration for Matt Dillon's Pat Healy and something about Mary, right? <laughs> well, I think I don't know. I don't know if he was. I don't know if. Uh, I don't. I don't think Walter was doing much. This film shares DNA with people. something about Mary. No, you think so? It's definitely a bit creepier. Like, Laura is Mary. Yeah, everyone loves her, that's true. But no one is, like, actually, you know, like a pizza boy who's pretending to be British. God, I love something about Mary. <laughs> we should have just watched that. Oh, it's so good. This is a good film, though. It, it is a good film. film. Yeah, yeah, good yeah film. it is, it is, it is. I'm mad to hear what you have to say about Gene Tierney. Oh, man. Big Gino. Got a lot of stuff to say. By the way, this film was uh, was nominated for five Oscars, winning one. That's right, that's right. Um, Best cinematography, black and white, which I think is a good... That's when they had to, you know... Yeah, they had to split up the caddies. Distinction. Exactly. Uh, Clifton Webb got uh, Best Actor in a Supporting Role nomination for Waldo. Fair enough. He's great. Yeah, I, yeah, I really liked him. I thought he was, um, I thought he was excellent. Uh, Otto Preminger for Best Director. The Screenwriters for Best Writing, Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. I think everybody's direction. good in it, actually, now that I think interior about decoration. it. Yeah, it's... Like, even the uncredited housemaid is... She brings it. Okay, so into the cast. Jean Tierney is Laura Hunt. It was originally going to be Marlene Dietrich. What did you say about Marlene Dietrich earlier? She Jimmy Stewart got her pregnant, and then she had an abortion. Everybody go and get pregnant. Somebody go and get pregnant tonight. <laughs> I'm Captain James T. Kirk. I lost my leg in Vietnam. Okay, so after this film, Gene Tierney went on to play Isabel in the original Razor's Edge. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I saw that looking her up. Do you know who played the Denim Elliott character, Elliot Templeton, in the original Razor's Edge? Is Elliot Templeton the Bill Murray? No, no, the, the old man. Oh, right, no. Clifton Webb, a.k.a. Waldo Lidecker. Oh what? Yeah. So the two two of the two leads or two of the leads from this film Had went worked on in to, Razor's Edge. This was at, Razor's Edge was after. That's nineteen forty six. Yeah. But yeah, so they went on to do Razor's Edge and then Bill Murray was like, I could do that better by making it second C. <laughs> do God, some improv. That was a disappointing weird movie. You know what this film needs? Improv. Tierney had reportedly started smoking after a screening of her first movie to lower her voice because she felt she sounded like an angry Minnie Mouse. She subsequently became a heavy smoker. I wonder how that's going to work out as she ages. 
Tierney struggled for years with episodes of manic depression. Tierney consulted a psychiatrist and was admitted to Harkness Pavilion in New York. Later, she went to the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. After some 27 shock treatments intended to alleviate severe Jesus. depression, Tierney fled the facility but was caught and returned. She later became an outspoken opponent of shock treatment therapy, claiming it had destroyed significant portions of her memory. That is what people say about that. Yeah, the ones who can remember. In late December 1957, Tierney, from her mother's apartment in Manhattan, stepped on, onto a ledge 14 stories above ground and remained for about 20 minutes in what was considered a suicide attempt. Police were called and afterwards Tierney's family arranged for her to be admitted to the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. The following year, after treatment for depression, she was discharged. Afterwards, she worked as a sales girl in a local dress shop with hopes of integrating back into society. But she was recognized by a customer, resulting in sensational newspaper headlines. Wow, that's so sad. Later in 1958, 20th Century Fox offered Tierney a lead role in Holiday for Lovers. But the stress upon her proved too great, so only days into production, she dropped out of the uh, she dropped out of the film, and returned to Menninger for a time. She married her first husband Oleg Cassini in 1941. In June in in June in June, 19, in June 1943, in June 1943, while pregnant with her first daughter Daria, Tierney contracted rubella, likely from a fan ill with the disease. Her daughter, Daria, was born prematurely in Washington, D.C., weighing three pounds, two ounces, and requiring a total blood transfusion. The rubella caused congenital damage. Daria was deaf, partially blind with cataracts, and severely mentally disabled. She was institutionalized for much of her life. This entire incident was inspiration for a plot point in the 1962 Agatha Christie novel, The Mirror Cracked, from side to side. So that's nice. It gave an influence to, to a writer. Good God, man. Tierney's friend Howard Hughes paid for Daria's medical expenses, ensuring the girl received the best care. Yeah, they were lifelong friends, right? Mm. Tierney and her husband uh, Cassini, Ole Cassini, separated in, on October 20th, 1946. During their separation, Tierney met a, a young man named John F. Kennedy, a World War II veteran who was visiting the set of the film Dragonwick in 1946. They began a romance that she ended the following year after after Kennedy told her he could never marry her because of his political ambitions. In 1960, Tierney sent Kennedy a note of congratulations on his victory in the presidential campaign. During this time, newspapers documented Tierney's other romantic relationships, including Kirk Douglas, oh. who's a big baddie. We've talked about him Yes, before. that's right. Very big much an enemy bastard. of the show. He is. Even if he is a friend. And he's a friend, but he's an enemy, a frenemy of the show. Yeah, we don't approve of that kind of crack. No. Nah. Tierney died of emphysema in 1991, 13 days before her 71st birthday. Stuff like this makes me sad. But that's this is the, when you were talking before about Hollywood, this is the Hollywood that I imagine, the rough stuff, the bad times, people going mad and yeah. smoking themselves to death. I'm not saying that stuff didn't exist too. But there was cool stuff. Yeah, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just seeing it with blinders because, like, I've heard many tales like that. And like, do you ever read the book? It's based on a real no. thing. But do you ever read the book, The Black Dahlia, the James Elroy book? The Black Dahlia, yeah. What I say? Something else. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I have, I have actually read that. I read, I've read a lot of James Elroy. Oh, he's great. He's one yeah. of my favorite writers. Um, but that book in particular is just. 
that could be like the Bible for the QAnon anti Hollywood. <laughs> like they could take that as like a, a Moses type story and just say, you see, look at this. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it's that fucked up. But well, he saw that the guy who killed the Dahlia had killed his mother, right? There was, there was a potential for his yeah, mother to that's be right. one of the yeah, Dahlia yeah, He wrote victims. a memoir about yeah, it later. Yeah. My Dark Place or My Dark Places? I can't remember. Something it's been a long like time. Yeah. It's a good book. Good books. But uh, yeah, the, this Gene Tierney story has just made me very sad, to be honest. It is a sad story. Well, next up is Dana Andrews, who played Mark McPherson. He was from Dunfermline in Fife. No, he wasn't, but <laughs> it would be good if he was. Do you know, I've got very little to say about him. I wrote, solid working actor, battled alcoholism. But, oh yeah, uh, I ran into that in his Wikipedia profile as well. I, the one person he reminded have, me though. of... George C. Scott did as well. I didn't even think it worth yeah, mentioning. It of time. course he did. It's a time, obviously, yeah. <laughs> But he reminded me of um, Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah, I can see that. He looks a bit Sarsgaardy. Mm. Okay, Clifton Webb as Waldo Lidecker. He had a bit of a film career until 1925. He had a few roles, some uncredited. After that, he was on Broadway until the late 40s. Um, but his casting in Laura was a big turning point for him. He went on, as I mentioned, to play Elliot Templeton in The Razor's Edge. The producer of Laura, Daryl F. Zanuck, really did not want Webb, but uh, Otto Preminger was very, very strong on that point. That's good. And eventually preva- prevailed, and Clifton Webb got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. And did you hear the other um, argument between Preminger and Zanuck about the plot? Uh, no, but I know because Preminger, oh, Preminger made the change that it was, he made it more about Waldo, right? No, he, Zanuck, am I saying that right? I don't know, Daryl F. Zanuck? Yeah, 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 yeah. He saw the initial screen testing and wanted an ending where the whole story was a a dream by Laura. And she had just imagined the whole thing. I think there was part of me thinking like, an interesting ending would have been if Waldo had killed her and then shot himself. There's part of me going like a fucked up ending would have worked there. Maybe not in 1944 during wartime. Certainly not. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but I could have bought that. What I was thinking, because I didn't know what way the film was going to end, is I w- well, I, is the film leading you this way? Because I was thinking this way, that Laura had killed her. Well, when she gets... When McPherson arrests her, <laughs> I guess you're just going like, oh, I guess she did it. But yeah, but I mean, the, she would be very much in the classic tradition of femme fatale, like tricking a detective. Yes, but she doesn't, there was nothing about her that seemed like that. Like, there's no part of there her character. There never is, Andy. You sure? There never is. She was so innocent the whole time. Clifton Webb was uh, a confirmed bachelor. I went down the Wikipedia uh, entry for a confirmed bachelor, which is uh, originally from Private Eye, apparently. It's a big, like, Private Eye thing from the... uh, Really? Yeah, To say you're gay? Yeah, so, like, it was a thing which they ironically started, I think, and then it started appearing in... The British satirical magazine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I like that. Confirmed bachelor, yeah. No, because it's like obviously it's better. Obviously, it's be- obviously it's better. Satire. No, obviously, what I mean to say is like obviously it's better that people generally accept homosexuals, but it was good that people found a coping mechanism rather than hating them and persecuting them. Yeah, no, them. but previously the phrase was "so and so never married." Yeah, yeah, I've that been- was that was what it was, and then it turned into like he was a confirmed bachelor. I mean, that is nice. In a hundred years after we're dead, people will look up, look at those as coping mechanisms that society had when it was becoming more enlightened. 
Mm. And, you know, obviously nowadays people go, ah, that's disgusting and stuff like that. But I mean, I've, I might have even told this on uh, the, the podcast. That, that was why you got married. Exactly. I didn't <laughs> want to be called a confirmed bachelor. No, um, I remember like years ago, like my, my grandmother, uh, dead now, she would, uh, one time we were, me and my brother were in the supermarket with her and we were like young kids at the time. And she pointed to these two men that were there doing their shopping. And she said to us, do you see those two men there? I see them here every week. <laughs> I think they're gay. <laughs> like that. And I, I like me and Kiran, because we knew what gay meant, because there'd been a famous story in an Irish soap opera about it. And I went, ooh, like that. But I think back to it uh, now, and I think, like, my mother, my grandmother, a very, like, conservative Catholic lady, but there was no hate. Yeah, it wasn't kind of malice. Sure. Just oddball curiosity. Yeah, yeah, it was something different, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and then you, you say phrases like that, like, confirmed bachelor, it just kind of, it's just, just because people weren't completely hip to the modern groove, I mean, the fact that people came up with an agreed upon, like, they kind of went... Can we just say confirmed bachelor so we don't have to just hate them and beat them off? That's kind of what I hear with that. No, I don't know. It could be worse than you might have. That might be a more positive spin that you're giving it. Anyway, Clifton Webb. Fair. Clifton Webb lived with his mother until her death at age ninety-one in nineteen sixty. Nice. Uh, leading Noel Coward to remark, "It must be terrible to be orphaned at seventy-one. Oh, Noel Coward. Why are you being so cruel? His Lies mother died. And then Webb died, uh, Clifton Webb died of a heart attack in 1966, just a few years later. Thanks, Noel Coward. Yeah. The curse of Laura. Yeah. <laughs> He's got, got another one. I think everyone is gone now. I think the curse is completed. All right, last up is Vincent Price as Shelby Carpenter, probably best nurse. known for his later horror films. Victoria Price's biography, uh, Vincent Price, a daughter's biography from 1999, details Price's early anti-Semitism. And initial admiration for Adolf Hitler. Oh, nice. <laughs> Good find, Andy. Yeah, you're going to love this bit. According to his daughter, when he went to Germany and Austria as a young man, he was struck by a lot of things going on during the Weimar Republic and the dissolution of the empire. So when Hitler came into power, instead of seeing him as a dangerous force, he was sort of swept up in this whole idea that Hitler was going to bring German pride back. However, Price became a liberal after becoming friends with New York intellectuals such as Dorothy Parker and Lillian Hellman in the 1930s, so much so that he was grey-listed under McCarthyism in the 1950s for having been a pre-war premature anti-Nazi, <laughs> and after being unable to find work for a year, agreed to request by the FBI that he sign a secret oath to save his career. Victoria said that her father became so liberal that one of my brother's earliest memories is when Franklin Roosevelt's death was announced. My father fell backwards off the sofa, sobbing. Wow, I mean, fair play in a way because... The he thing went is, both ways. Super, super heavy. Well, the thing is, is like, I've dabbled in some foolishness, I'm sure, <laughs> at some point in my life that a few months later I went, whoa, geez, I can't believe I dabbled in that. So I'm sure there was, you know, innocent fools like me who dabbled in a bit of Nazism and yeah, then, when the other then once the right side of history emerged, it just went, oh, Jesus, oh, what the hell? I, I need to get away from this right now. What was I thinking? So, <laughs> so probably a, a president like Roosevelt, I mean, basically he's Jesus Christ for Vincent Price's career at that point, no? Yeah, yeah. In an interview in 2015, Victoria confirmed that her father confided in her his intimate relationships with men when she came out to him as a lesbian. Very call me by your name. 
Hmm. I was also a gay guy. You know, I'm something of a lesbian myself. <laughs> and that's it. We've covered all of the talking points. Gay, Nazi, cancer. Rape. What else? What else is there left to say? We got all all of the uh, call it friendo castleist talking points. Was in Razor's Edge. What else do we have to say? Absolutely nothing. That's it. What a thrilling episode. End. Yeah. There's only one thing Epichode. left to do. Go. Let's toss. Yeah. I am holding a coin. I don't know if that works, but I got it. What do you got, fucker? Well, I uh, went for one car wise in the mood for love. I feel like I put up maybe Chunking Express before. Okay. So, in the mood for love, I've seen quoted in many places as a great film. Yes. <laughs> many people do say it's a, it's a great film. It's a great. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great film. Great. They say um, it's great. I, I'm going much. Uh, on the other side of the uh, the spectrum of arty to trashy for you. Well, I don't know. A lot of people like this film. I want to see uh, Brian De Palma's 1980s remake of Blow Up. Blow Out. Oh, so it's a remake. Yeah. Huh. That's almost an Alan Partridge transition I did there. That's my the Blow Up. Blow <laughs> Out. Uh, okay. What have I got? Man or one? Oh, how am I not going to... S- Ooh. Man is tempting. Always. <laughs> Always. One... Wong, give me, give me the man. Man. Yay! Michael Mann. Nice. Uh, Let me just say, I'm glad because I've seen uh, the movie uh, and I'm not as big a fan of it as a lot of people are. (laughs) You're saying it's not great. I'm saying it's not great. Yeah, it's fine. I don't know. I think people make a big deal out of it. I think the, the, the first part of the trilogy is better. Days of Being Wild. Anyway, go on. Uh, oh, no, yeah. You. Uh, the onus is on me. Well, I haven't Anus. seen the third part of the trilogy, uh, so I was going to put that up, and then naturally we were going to watch all three films, so I was going to put up 2046. Oh, I, I want to see 2046. Maybe. I haven't seen the 2045. Well, we're both, ones. so, you know, we're both at the exact right point on the spectrum that if if anybody puts up any part of a trilogy, we're yeah, going to watch, we'll watch all three all, movies. Obviously. Wow. When time is when time allows it, sure. Exactly. Well, I'm actually going to put up. Uh, I asked Chat <laughs> Chat GPT earlier for a list of films which were appropriate to watch uh, alongside Blowout, and I uh, ended up with a film that you put up for a toss many moons ago, directed by John Cassavetes. Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, I don't know why that works, but. Well, I guess we'll find out. A robot told me to pick it, so I did. Fucking sweet. I've been looking forward to that. What are we yeah. uh, talking about next week? We don't know, do we? I don't know. We could all go to the cinema. We should go to the cinema. Uh, we could go see Air. The Ben Affleck film. The Baffleck. What else Air's is Air's up there. Still Air. Mostly Air, I'm seeing. Let's see. What's on the What's on the other place? Triangle of Sadness. I hear that's good. Everything Ever All at Once. That's supposed to be good. Oh, Cairo Conspiracy. I got hold of that, actually, myself. What's Cairo Conspiracy? It's an Egyptian thing looking at a university in Cairo that is either a big Sunni or Shia Is it a documentary? No, no, it's a narrative film. It's by an Egyptian guy. It's filmed in Istanbul, I think, because he couldn't make it in Egypt. No, hell no. I think he might have problems if he goes back to Egypt. I think he's a Swedish-Egyptian guy. I saw a trailer for it the other day. I actually have it. I got hold of a copy. 
But it's also in the cinema. Called hmm. Cairo Conspiracy. Anyway, there's a bunch of other stuff. There's Air, obviously. Why the fuck is Air still there? Or is Air gone? I think Air might have actually gone. No, Air's still there. Air's still on. Uh, okay, well, I guess we'll figure it out uh, in the next few days. Air looks like a good option, but uh, unconfirmed as of yet. But something new. Something new. Indeed. Not something borrowed or, or something s- blue. Or something wild. Unless we're talking about my balls. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's it for me and you. I love yes. you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. Bye. <laughs>